Hey, welcome back to Conversing Labs. This is Reversing Labs podcast where we talk about the latest in threat intelligence, threat hunting, software assurance. We're talking to the best and brightest minds in the cybersecurity, information security industry. Really thrilled to be back with you doing another one of our series of Black Hat focused talks. And our guest today is Adam Shostak of Shostak and Associates. Adam, welcome. Hey, great to be here. Great to have you here. Um, and uh, before we move on to your talk at Black Hat, maybe just tell our audience if they're not familiar with you a little bit about yourself and the work you do. Sure. So these days I'm very focused on helping organizations do a better job threat modeling, helping them anticipate and address questions of what can go wrong and what are we going to do about it as we're building things. I got here after helping create the CVE, many different startups, a decade at Microsoft. I'm on the review board for Black Hat. And I'm even speaking of Black Hat this year, which I'm super excited about. You are indeed. You are indeed. And um, for our audience, when you talk about like threat modeling, like that's my area of it, that's your area of expertise. You've written books on it, you're an expert in it. What are we talking about with threat modeling? So what we're talking about really is anticipating the problems, the threats that are going to face our systems once we've built them, deployed them in whatever way that is. And really, I mean, obviously, I wrote a really long book on this subject, but we can boil it down to four very simple questions that we're always answering. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? Did we do a good job? And these are, uh, an academic wrote a paper not too long ago and called them deceptively simple questions, which I just yeah. love mm -hmm. because we can take these questions and we can just ask someone, hey, you're working on this. What can go wrong? Or we can get into using a tool, something like Stride or like a kill chain to provide structure to how we're going to think about what can go wrong so that if you and I and the person listening to this all independently start to threat model, say, the act of creating and delivering a podcast, we'll come up with similar answers, right? If that's what we're working on, mm -hmm. what can go wrong? We might have, I don't know, browser tabs chewing up our CPU. We might lose our bandwidth. We might lose power. I don't know what power. you're talking about, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> a um, lot could go wrong, let me tell you. <laughs> and you've got specific answers based on your experience with podcasting. Yep. And I have specific answers that are driven by my background. And our listener has specific answers driven by their background. And so that can cause all of this to look a little bit random. And so if instead we use Stride, spoofing, tampering, repudiation, info disclosure, denial of service, expansion of authority, um, then, each of, then we can say, hey, we've got tampering problems. And so we're using this tool that you like that's making local recordings of each side. We might have info disclosure. We might leak the big reveal before the end of the podcast. We might have denial of service, but we can use this so that we get 
consistency because management loves consistency, right? Nobody wants if, and again, just sticking with the podcast, how many episodes are you going to produce, Paul? Well, some. <laughs> when are they going to be ready? Soon. <laughs> um, versus yeah. we're going to produce two a week or two a month. Mm -hmm. Let's be realistic about our time, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to produce two a month for the next year. Oh, right. okay. Yep. That consistency, we in security, because we're often interrupt-driven, it's hard for us to do that sort of thing. That makes it hard for us to support the teams around us. And that leads to conflict. Right. It all kind of floats in this sort of amorphous, you know, make the product more secure, you know, pr keep hackers out, right? Um, as opposed yeah. to, yeah, and fear of attack and fear of compromise. So your talk at Black Hat, um, you know, addresses many of these issues. Um, and the title of your talk, um, let me just get my voice right here, is <clears throat> a fully trained Jedi, you are not. Uh, <laughs> mm. Well done, you did. There we go. Uh, <laughs> um, and from here on in, uh, we can only use the Yoda voice in this podcast. So, you know, listeners, prepare, <laughs> prepare yourself. Um, no, a fully trained Jedi, you are not. And um, uh, this, so this is a ref. So for the few people out there who may not have seen the Star Wars movies, or uh, this is from The Empire Strikes Back. And um, it's a reference to, you know, Luke goes to train with uh, Yoda uh, to become a fully trained Jedi. Uh, but then Luke being Luke uh, gets impatient, wants to be able to go out and help his friends and doesn't really want to have to go through the whole training. And so he basically bails. Um, and Yoda is trying to convince him that he shouldn't do that. He should stay and finish his training so that he can be a true Jedi and not kind of a half-assed, half-trained Jedi. Um, so I guess the big question is, first of all, are you saying that Yoda is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, Yoda's, the Yoda's model for training Luke is incorrect. And that Luke, in his haste and impatience, is actually right. I mean, the movies would kind of bear out that, that maybe Luke didn't make the wrong decision in, in taking off, leaving early. <laughs> so first, first, I love... I love that we are doing the Star Wars geeking thing yeah. here. Let's just let's just lay it out there. <laughs> and and so I have a bunch of different answers. My first answer is that I actually wasn't planning to go that deep, <laughs> but I will come back and answer your question. Yes. Uh, uh, but let me answer your question first. Actually, yeah. Okay. I wasn't planning to go that deep, but. I will say that Yoda is not wrong, but his training model is. Right. Right? He's correct. Luke is not a fully trained Jedi, and only a full Jedi master at the height of their powers can actually confront Darth Vader and expect to win. Right. But Yoda's training model is awful. It's 900 years old, and it doesn't look good. Yeah, I mean the Jedi is this kind of it's this quasi-religious, you know, and and it and it's all about mastery, right? I mean, 
there are but, no. Okay, I'm I'm all about mastery. Mastery right. is great. Yeah. But standing on your head lifting boxes in the air, <laughs> how does this help you defeat a galactic empire? <laughs> it's hard to scale uh, that, really. <laughs> it's it's hard to scale that. Yeah. It's not clear how I'm gonna use this in my job. Right. Um do I need to stand on my head to make a git commit? Right. Um <laughs> And the Empire kind of got that because they were like, you know what? We're just going to throw like a thousand robots at the Jedis and like, yeah, they're great, but we're just going to kind of overwhelm them with our with our cheap and disposable, you know, opponents. So so my talk is not quite going there. <laughs> Sorry, my, I, can, my talk, I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, no, it was a great question. I yes. love your question okay. and it's fun. My talk is more about, we talk a lot about Jedi in cybersecurity. We talk about heroism. Yeah. And... And mastery. And and let me stick to heroism for a second first. Demands for heroism are unhealthy. Right? Yeah. We We need engineers not heroes who are going to go run off and save their friends and put themselves at bodily risk to secure their products. Luke. Yeah. We, we do need mastery from some people of some things, but not everyone wants to be a cybersecurity expert. You know, I, I know people who, for example, are UI mavens, mm-hmm. usability mavens, or they are really good at performance, or they're really good at scalability. And if we're going to build a system in which we require everyone to be a Jedi Knight, what are those people doing here? And if we're making that demand and they're not ready to meet that demand, that leads to hatred. And hatred leads to anger. Right. Anger leads to the dark side. <laughs> right. You're gonna have a you're gonna have a staff of Darth Vader's on your hand. It's not gonna be pretty. Yeah. Um so let's talk about like the reality in most development organizations today. And as I wrote in my questions to you, they they seem they seem more Jawa than Jedi, um, <laughs> if I if I might say that. It's a high amount of um, kind of chaos and 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 uh, you know kind of loose practice. Uh, within many software development organizations, um, uh, you know, obviously the, the larger companies, uh, Microsoft, Google, and, and Apple, so on, have, have huge security teams and a lot of discipline. But you know, down there in the rank and file, there's a lot less. Um, is is it your thinking that one of the reasons for that is that? organizations are kind of development organizations are kind of throwing up their hands at the, you know, let's turn our developers into security Jedi's problem, knowing that it's going to be too time and resource intensive. And so sort of, you know, we can't climb that hill. uh, So we're just going to kind of ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 100%. If, if I tell you that in order to succeed, 
first you should get a PhD, and then you should do five years of additional research in static analysis. And then, Padawan, you're ready to tune the static analysis tool. You know, there's only 12 of those people in the world. And if we need to, right? So this is part of why SEMGREP is getting a lot of traction today is because it's designed to be usable static analysis. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. we're going to say you've got to climb this mountain before you can do anything in software security, a lot of people will say, mm-hmm. okay, thanks. Have a nice day. What can, yeah. what can we do in 30 minutes? Right, right, right. And, and in some ways, your talk at Black Hat is kind of answering that question. Let me tell you what you can do in 30 minutes or the the equivalent of 30 minutes, right? Um, you talk a lot about, um, I've heard you talk about this before, but like, um, for example, Bloom's Taxonomy, which is a tool for teachers really, um, that talks about kind of the progression from kind of rote remembering to, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid and, and then at the top, it's kind of creative thinking, right? Um, Precisely. Creativity. Um, uh, talk about that and, and how that kind of figures into your thinking about how to address developer security education. Sure. So when I started training, and I, I now do a lot of training, I had this implicit belief that everyone wanted to become a Jedi that everyone was excited to take a multi-day training course and learn the things that I could teach them. Read a book. Right? Why, why have me do your training if you don't want to learn the things that only I can teach you? Well, as it turns out, a lot of people want some skill. They want to learn how to do this. They want to learn how to do it from someone who's really good. And so I've learned... You know, I do, I have things like the world's shortest threat modeling course. It's a collection of one minute videos. You can find it on YouTube. We'll link to Um, it. I'll get you a link to it. And I have multi-day intensive trainings and they serve different audiences. And I use tools like Bloom's Taxonomy to help me think about what is the student's learning journey What order do I need to give them the facts that they remember, then teach them to apply those facts, etc.? And the reason I'm going to talk about Bloom's taxonomy at Black Hat is because I believe that we, as a community, need to have a conversation about what it is that we should expect a normal developer to know in, say, 2022 or 2025, Mm -hmm. And I don't have to reinvent the framework for that, right? Bloom's taxonomy has been around for 50 years. Um, It's been around because it's useful. There's a lot of useful tools to help you use it. So why don't we start with that and start filling it with information and saying, If you want to be a developer in 2025, you should know this. Or 
If you want to be a level six developer here at company, we expect you to know these things. Mm -hmm. We expect you to be able to apply these skills in these ways. And and how does that um, how does that translate through to like security skills? So like you know at the bottom of the pyramid again is sort of remember, um, and like the next level up is I think you know understand or something. Remember, understand, apply. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like how does that train? Like so, what are, what are the what are the kind of base things that we're trying to remember, and then the, maybe the conceptual things we're trying to have them understand. Well, I mean, if if you look around at the training space, apparently the base things you're supposed to remember are like how to write a cross-site scripting exploit or why SQL injection happens versus remember... How not to create buffer overflows or something like that, right? Well, even simpler, though. Yeah. Remember that if you're parsing, if you're combining user-supplied data and code, things can go very wrong. Right. Then be able to apply that to say, hey, this function, this method, takes user-supplied data and it constructs a SQL statement dynamically. Maybe I should then apply that knowledge and see. And so we, we have done a bad job, I think, as, an as a set of security specialists of defining this knowledge, right? Things that we teach people, like sanitize data. No, please don't. Right. If you can't parse it, you're not going to make it better by changing the way you're not parsing it. If that crap is coming from the internet and it looks dangerous, it probably is. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we ask people to learn things that are actually quite complex and we treat it as baseline knowledge. And so much of what I see out there is it's a little bit like, you know, maybe taking a photography course and the instructor says, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to shift your camera to manual mode mm -hmm. so that you really need to learn exposure, time, and f-stops. Whoa, I'm trying to figure out how to make my camera focus here. Right, right. Right, or what I should be pointing uh, at, right. Yeah, maybe we should leave the cameras on automatic mode for a little yeah. bit and talk about composition. So, I mean, one of the things I've heard you talk about is this idea that threats should be the fundamental unit for engineers as they contemplate, you know, security, you know, code security, rather than things like risk or compliance or, you know, you know, whatever, national security. Um, could you just talk about that as sort of the, the, the organizing factor? I think you just you sort of hinted at it before when, when you were talking about just, you know, SQL injection and, and, and how those types of uh, threats get created. But talk about this you know, need to focus really on threats when you're trying to communicate or educate developers around security concepts. So there's a lovely little book entitled Start With The Why. And threats are the why. Threats are the things that can go wrong, the promises of future violence, right? He 
the, the example I always use is he threatened to beat me up if I didn't give him my lunch money, right? The, there's a promise of future violence. There's a thing I can do to avert it. And I believe that that informs the way developers should think is why do I care about this? With compliance, what happens is we give them these checklists of do this, do this, do this, but without a why, without a reason for doing that thing, I can't judge whether or not I did it well. And like, I could do my own taxes, probably, but I have somebody else do it because... I don't actually know whether or not I, you know, did I put the right value here? What's the relationship between revenue and income? Um, And so the, the compliance lists feel a lot like that, where I don't know why I'm putting this number here. I don't know if I'm putting the right number here. I don't know how to judge my work. Where if I start with the threats, If I start by saying, I'm concerned about someone tampering with the recording of this call, then when I get to mitigations, I can say, for example, I'm going to make my own recording of it so that if we have a disagreement, and I'm not thinking I really need to do this with you, of course, but if we have a disagreement, I've got my own tape and I can release that tape. And so that's a really lightweight example where if I understand the threat, I can think better about the mitigation and know why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, over the years, it, it's, it's often been said or folks have kind of advocated for the, for the fact that, you know, our universities that educate software engineers should be doing more to teach, you know, secure development principles at the undergraduate level um, and turn out, you know, developers who are familiar with these concepts, but that it still to this day isn't a big part of the curriculum. Um, I almost wonder if that's kind of an outdated conversation, even given how many avenues there are into software development these days, most of them not through the university, but, but I, I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, is, is that part of the problem here just with the lack of general knowledge around software, secure development concepts? So, so I love this question. Um, I'm, I'm an affiliate professor at the computer science school at the university of Washington. And so I get to think about what is the difference between what I do when I'm teaching a university course and what I do when I'm teaching a training course? And I think the thing that comes out of a good university education is really the upper levels, to go back to Bloom, the upper levels, the reflective, the long-term, the principles, And I do believe that those ought to be part of an undergraduate education. And one of the challenges that I think we face in integrating them is what principles should we teach that are long-term, right? Some of the things that I learned when I was in Mm -hmm. college were 
critical thinking skills. I learned writing skills that I still bring to bear. Sure. Yeah. Um, a lot later, a lot later. <laughs> um, and if we teach people about, say, buffer overflows, that's a useful bit of knowledge if you're writing code in C. But hopefully you're not going to be writing much code in C. So what's the thing that you're supposed to take away from it, right? Which is maybe input is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's some of the Langsex mm -hmm. stuff where we talk about weird machines and... Um, but I think the biggest, there, there are two really big challenges, actually. Big challenge number one is time, right? The undergraduate curriculum exists. There's the ACM reference curriculum, for example, and each accredited school has a curriculum which works, and that curriculum is full. Right. There's there's not an extra nine course hours and six assignments that are just waiting for us yeah, in security to in. pop yeah. in and say, add this. And so there is work being done on how do we teach this? What do we teach? The other the other problem is what do we teach? That's and I real I talked about this, but the. What are the enduring lessons for security that we want people to know and take away for every engineer? And, and I, your point about not everyone is coming through the university, there's lots of boot camp programs that, that are happening, which are great. And similarly, I think we need to think about what they need to be teaching, right? What's the educational bit that, that they should have? And obviously it's different. But the thing I'm hoping that comes out of my Black Hat talk is a conversation about what these learning goals ought to be. Because we once we know what those are better, we can apply them. We can say, hey, let's figure out where to integrate this lesson Right, maybe buffer overflows become part of a compiler's course. Um, we can find ways to fit them in when we have a more of a shared understanding of what we in industry think every developer actually needs to know. Because today, I think we don't have. We go to the university and, and we say, and here I'm putting my industry hat back on. We go to universities and say, teach security. And they say, what do you want us to teach? And what do you want us to remove from the curricula? And we don't have clear answers. You obviously advise companies. That's really what you do for your day job is, is, is advising companies and, and consulting with them on, on issues like this. Um, and you are in this Black Hat talk are really going to be talking about this notion of security shifting left, you know, moving into, you know, or, or certainly being much more intertwined with development, um, you know, um, and, but also that that there's that that's going to kind of uh, force changes uh, on development groups in, in ways that they may not be ready for. So um, I guess, you know, through your consulting work and so on, I mean, obviously you're seeing 
sort of shift left in the trenches as it's happening. Um, talk just a little bit about what your experience has been and what are some of the tensions that develop as, you know, again, security teams and, and the focus moves into uh, development groups where it, it hasn't been that much of a focus. Wow, that's a great question. Um, and let me let me say that in in the world in which we live in, with there's a lot of external stress from the pandemic, from world events, and at the executive level, one of the jobs of the CEO is to figure out what change needs to happen this year. What are we? What are the important things that we're doing here? For example, I can see your Reverse and Labs shirt on. What are the important things we're doing here at Reverse and Labs this year? What are the three things that matter to me that I told the board we're going to do? And when security tries to force its way left, and you used that term, and I, I sort of twigged a little bit, it fails. What we need to do is we need the CEO, we need the VP of engineering to be saying things like, our customers care more about security, and therefore we're going to integrate security earlier into our development activities. Mm. Or... They might say, we have so much rework and it's killing us because instead of getting it right the first time, we get it right the third time and it's destroying our schedules. Or they might say, I'm just tired of these bleeping escalations where Developers show up the day before they're planning to ship and say, hey, Ms. CISO, can we get an exception because we didn't know we had to do security for this thing that's processing medical data and social security numbers? Right, right. And, and so the first thing that successful companies do is they generate a sense of urgency. Why is this change happening? And you notice I'm starting with the why again. My answer is different, but we're doing this to make this change happen. And frankly, a lot of my business is companies that didn't do this, that tried to force their way left, that are now having a crisis because they didn't pay attention to the human side of change. And so we come in, we've got a team that does this, we listen to their problems, we help them solve those problems. Um, and the other customers that I work with are thinking in this way and they're, they have a reason to do more secure development. They're looking for early successes they bring us in or they send a, they bring us in to do some training. They send a couple of people to one of our open courses. They learn how to think about this. And then they go and they do. And then they celebrate the success. 
you know, here on our podcaster project, we succeeded because we thought about these things. And boy, nothing blew up at the end. It, from a security perspective, it was nice. It was different. And so I think that you, my colleagues, ought to give this threat modeling thing a try because it actually led to smoother development. And so when we, when we see shifting left happening, we see it working because of the respect for the difficulty of change and that people are really thinking about how they're gonna lead change, how they're gonna use threat modeling as a new language to talk about what they're working on and what can go wrong. And then the shift left project succeeds. You are a big advocate, or just judging from hearing some of your other interviews, of instead of focusing on teaching, you know, just let's let's pick a grab bag of different skills that we want to teach people. Really basing a lot of this around frameworks um, for security um, and using those really as a foundation for your approach to you know developer education is around you know adopting secure frameworks and more or less following the framework. Um, so. Natural question would be, well, what are some frameworks that um, you think are useful for development organizations to look at? The first framework I like to teach is the four question framework for threat modeling. It's in my book, it's in the threat modeling manifesto. It's what are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we gonna do about it? Did we do a good job? Almost everything else I teach fits into that framework. So we'll talk about stride. I already rattled off stride. It's a way of thinking about the question of what can go wrong but the, the key is that human brains are really good at pattern recognition. We put patterns onto things that don't even have patterns. And so if we give students the patterns and tell them this, these are the cubby holes that you're going to put the info in, they learn better. You know, final, final question would be, uh, obviously, one of the ways that companies tried to um, enforce secure development and you know level up is through hiring and and kind of trying to set a, a bar um, at the hiring process around security knowledge um, I'm interested in your your feelings about that and you know are there bare minimums um, that that um, companies should have when hiring developers understanding obviously that you know the higher you set that bar you know the fewer people who are going to clear it and it might take longer to fill that open rack right? So, so you might think I'm biased because I do training and the lower the bar, the more training I get to do. <laughs> True enough. But um, today's hiring market is really weird. There's super intense competition for really good folks. And there's a lot of people banging on the door trying to find a way in. And... If we have people who are banging on the door trying to find their first job in security, and we already ask for five years of experience for your first job. <laughs> this is something I've, I've heard from folks who do, who do placement too, that this is really common, that you get these entry level job wrecks where they're asking for multiple years of you know, work history. It's sort of like, Okay, uh, those two things don't go go together, right? But yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I, 
I think that before we can think about, for me, job descriptions and promotion ladders are end states, right? That once you've trained your people, once you've made this the way we ship software here at the Tyrell Corporation, um, then you can add this to the ladder and you can say, here's the sort of things we look for. But today, um, I mean, the other, the other thing that springs to mind is there's a set of interview questions which are tantamount to tell me mm-hmm. what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw recently a, a thing from a consulting company that said threat modeling is all about think like an attacker. Mm-hmm. Disagree with them. People are welcome to have different opinions about what makes for good threat modeling. The reasons I don't like think like an attacker are because it's, I don't know how to teach it, right? I don't know how to go up Bloom's taxonomy for it. And many law abiding engineers don't feel like their job should be to be a criminal. And so I've, I've heard a lot of pushback on this, but most importantly, if we want to hire, train, and apply, only once we're able to really apply consistently and to work at the levels of evaluate, compare and contrast, and have a mature discussion about threat modeling because we've been doing it for a while, know there's multiple ways of doing it, can we think about putting it in as a hiring bar? Adam, is there anything I didn't ask you that um, you wanted to say? So this this has been a lot of fun. You, you've had some of the best Star Wars questions. Um, <laughs> and and if, if I may, if I may, um, a lot of my thinking about these issues has been driven because I'm working on a new book Um, which is titled Threats, What Every Engineer Should Learn from Star Wars. It's coming out early next year. And thank you. I'm super excited about it. And it's really, you know, when I write books, I take a long time to write books. This has been in the works for a while. Because I'm really trying to ask that question in the subtitle. What does every engineer need to know or what should they learn from Star Wars? But the Star Wars cover is really just to make it a little bit more fun. It's not, you you got to be a Star Wars nerd to understand it. Um, one of my beta readers actually has never seen the movies. And they yell at me um, every time I make an incomprehensible reference. And I'm like, okay, okay. And some of it's so <laughs> pop culture that they know about it anyway. And some yeah, of it's like yeah. I'm deep in the weeds, but I don't want—I yeah. don't want that to be a hiring criteria any more than I want. Right? I don't want to exclude anyone, but I do think that yeah. this conversation is crucial as security move as security has moved over the last decade from nice to have to mandatory. Right. 
we need to change the way we teach. We need to define what we expect of people crisply, understandably. And so that's the thing that I've been spending my intellectual energy on. And so I'm excited for my Black Hat talk. I'm excited for the book. And I'm excited for more Star Wars geekery. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say to your reviewer, you know, you just got to watch Star Wars. <laughs> it's basically just my... a collection of archetypes. I'm not even sure if you really do need to see it, but you should probably watch it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did a couple of practice runs for my talk and someone said yeah. to me that they'd never seen Star Wars. And I'm like, do you, do you watch TV at all? Yeah. I mean, what were you watching recently that's going to be better than that? <laughs> Honestly. I mean, and there's some, there's some great stuff that's come out lately. I'm not saying it's the only good thing on yeah. earth. Yeah. Um, you just, uh, you need the, you need the vocabulary of Star Wars because it is, it is like, it's this part of people's, you know, it's, you know, Jungian is part of our collective unconscious at this point, you know, and all these, you know, Luke and Darth Vader and all this stuff is just kind of how people frame the world. So it's like, you kind of need to see it to be able to engage in those conversations. Yes. There's, there's certain things, <laughs> right. Um, and there's the meme of the day club where if you yeah. haven't seen the thing, yeah. you don't know what it is. But there are enduring references that we, we rely on, shared experiences. Um, and so, look, the reason I use Star Wars is, is because it's accessible to most people. I don't go deep into the Star Wars geekery. Um, but it, it's a fun little add-on that helps us because this security stuff can really be scary. It can be intimidating like Darth Vader. Mm. And so I'm, I'm looking to make it accessible. I'm looking to say what everyone should know. And the fewer demands we put on people, the easier it is for them to hit those marks. Absolutely. I agree. A good teaching technique, if nothing else. Adam Shostak of Shostak and Associates, thanks so much for coming in and speaking to us on Conversing Labs podcast. And your talk at Black Hat is <clears throat> a fully trained Jedi. You are not. And that is uh, Wednesday, August 10th at uh, 1120 out at Black Hat in Las Vegas. So if you're there at the show, by all means, check we're this streaming. Talk out. I believe we're streaming live this and, year as well. And you can stream. Yeah, you can you can attend virtually. Actually, all the all the sessions at Black Hat, which is great. So if you're not in Vegas, because you know why not why not stay home if you can, uh, you can check it out virtually. Adam, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it.